What a joy to be with you this morning. Thanks for having me. Have you ever said no to something only to later realise just how much you missed out on? I read about a guy who um, was 67 years old. He lived in Bolivia. His name was Thomas Martinez. And unbeknownst to him, one day he had a distant relative pass away. And so the police came to find Thomas Martinez to say, Thomas, you are the heir of a $6 million inheritance. Well, this Thomas Martinez was actually homeless and living on the streets of Bolivia. And when he saw the police approaching him, he ran. See, Thomas had a little bit of a history with alcohol and drugs, and he figured the police were after him about that. So he ran, and he ran, and to this day, so this was in the year 2000, so 18 years later, as far as I know, they have not found Thomas Martinez, and I don't know what happened to the $6 million. If he knew what he was going to miss out on, do you think he would have run? Somehow I don't think so. Somehow I don't think so. And so this morning I wanted to spend some time for us to just have a little look at a story about somebody who was given an opportunity, but fortunately for us, they said yes to the opportunity. And so we know how much they got out of it instead of speculating about how much they missed, might have missed out on. And so we're looking in John chapter 6, but I just want to backtrack a little bit. What's been happening in the book of John so far? So Jesus has just um, started his public ministry. He's, he's, he's performed his miracle at um, the wedding, of turning water into wine. He's had this wonderful conversation with the woman of Samaria. And, and we're just starting to get a little bit of a feel for the crowd that are, that are gathering around Jesus and, and, and the people that are traveling and hearing him. Um, and it's interesting, in chapter 4, verse 48, Jesus says to these people, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. It sounds to me like this is a very uh, searching audience, a very searching crowd, and yet a very cynical and kind of, ah, prove it to me, prove to me how, how correct you are, how true you are, how great you are. And then in chapter 5, verse 39 to 40, Jesus says again of these people, you search the scriptures because you think that in them, in them you have eternal life. But it is these things that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. They're looking for answers, and the answers are right in front of them, if you like, and yet they're not seeing it. That sounds to me like the world that I live in today. I'm not sure about you, but it sounds to me like people who are skeptical and yet really stubborn. I'll believe it if you can prove it. Sounds like they're really searching. There's this deep spiritual hunger in the world today. You see all these classes for, you know, I don't know, spiritual this or seeking that, inquiring about this, try to find meaning in life. People are searching and yet they're unteachable. They'll find the truth themselves, their own way, when it suits them and how it suits them, and they will find a truth that suits them. So it's this very puzzling kind of paradox in a sense of this, of this, I want to know, and yet I am the one who will figure out when I have found what I want to know. And so in this chapter then, we come to chapter 6, and I'm just going to read it for you, because the Bible does say it best. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. 
Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, in number about 5,000, and then Jesus took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, When the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Great story. And in verse 2, it kicks off with this large crowd following Jesus. Why are they following Jesus? Because they have seen signs which Jesus is performing on those who are sick. I wonder if there's some deep supernatural hunger that is sparked in them when they see something that they can't explain. When you see something supernatural, you can't explain it. It's like, ah, that's pretty amazing and I don't understand it and I, I wish I could understand it and I wish that could be me and I wish I could have a bit of that, but I can't. So I'm just going to hang around and find out a bit more. And so they've got this awareness of a need inside themselves that they need something greater and more powerful than what they've got. So they're following Jesus and they're hanging around. They want to see. Now, verse 5, we have this overwhelming need. There's this overwhelming situation. There's all these people. They need to be fed. And how are they going to get fed? Verse 5, Jesus lifts up his eyes and he says to Philip, What? Where are we going to buy bread so that they can eat? Isn't it interesting that sometimes the most hard full of pressure, challenging times are the most revealing about who we are and what we really believe. And I think that's what's happening here. When, when Philip is overwhelmed by the need, what is his response going to be? I don't know about you, but I like to fix things. So um, I, I trained as a counsellor and one of, the things they, they, one of the first things they told us, which really irritated me, because I'm like, I came to counselling to help people, to fix people. And one of the first things they told me is, we're not there to fix people. And I'm like, what is this profession? Seriously. Shrinks. Um, and, and, and yet, when I see a need, I, I want to do something about it. You know, when I read headlines about disasters around, the first question is, what am I going to do? Is that a bad thing? I wouldn't suggest that's a bad desire, but it's an interesting one because how great do I think I am? How great do I think I am? So when I see the overwhelming needs within myself, when there's a hunger within myself, when there's a a loneliness or or a lack of something, what do I do to meet that need? What is my response when I see 
needs in the, in the people around me because there's a temptation to go for quick fixes. Oh, oh, this person needs, I don't know, they need some money, so I'm just going to give them money. I'm not saying don't give people money. Or I'm not saying that. Please give me money. My card's out on the table. Um, I'm not saying don't give people money, but sometimes that's not necessarily the solution for that moment. You think about the prodigal son in the pigsty, and I've heard it once said, the worst thing that anyone could have done for him in that pigsty was bring him a casserole. And I thought about that a lot, and I didn't know if I agreed with that at the time, but I get the spirit of it. The spirit of it is, God, what are you wanting to do in this situation? Recognizing, hey, you know what? Because God always... He always has a plan that is far, far greater than our resources. He always has a plan that is far greater than our resources. So if I jump too quickly into a situation with my resources, if possible, I'm going to miss out on something that God had in mind that was a lot bigger. So in verse 7, Philip becomes very painfully aware of this need. He's like, well, doing a quick head count... Even if I had 200 denarii, it's not even going to be enough for people to have a crumb each. I mean, you can have a lick, of, a lick of bread and pass it on, right? It's just not going to be enough. And I would suggest to you today that awareness, when we see a problem, when we see a need, that is like a fork in the road for us. And we've got two roads we can walk down at that point. One is humility and one is hubris. Hubris. Do you know what hubris is? Some people do, some people don't. Hubris is all about, um, I've got a definition here and I can't find it in my notes. Who knows? Hubris is this overwhelming sense of pride, excessive pride and self-confidence. Whereas humility recognizes, oh, I don't actually have enough resources for this. So this is how it works. Hubris says, what can I do in this situation? Humility says, what does God want to do in and through me? Because I recognize I don't have enough in myself. Do you get it? I don't have enough. I can't do anything here. But God, you can. And I want to I be a part of that. And I love what Jesus says to Philip. Did you notice it in verse 5? What does he, what's his question? He says, where are we to buy bread? There's an invitation here. When there's an overwhelming need in your life, I don't think that God sits up there and crosses an arm and goes, oh, this will be interesting. I wonder what's going to happen here. Like he said to Philip, he comes and he says to you, hey, here's a need. What are we going to do? Because God's got a plan and he's inviting us to partner with him in that plan. So what are we going to do? So humility, instead of being overwhelmed by the needs and by the problems and being paralyzed into inactivity and being scared and overwhelmed, instead humility comes and says, it's not hubris. I don't have enough. I can't do anything here. And so God, what are you wanting to do? Can I partner with you in humility? God, what are we going to do? Because if you don't do something, you're the only option we've got. There's an old hymn, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, the Father's full giving has only begun. Philip says, I know what I've got is not enough. Well, he doesn't say that literally, but kind of. And so then into the story enters one of my favorite little Bible characters, and he, I think he's little because he's a, he's a little lad, he's a little boy. Verse 8, here's this little boy. He's got five barley loaves and two fish. That's not 
It doesn't sound like much. Even if they're big loaves, small, it's just still not much. But here's the thing to note. He's got enough for his lunch, hasn't he? He could sit down and say, hey, guys, (laughs) sorry, you weren't prepared. He could sit right down in front of them all and slowly lick his fingers, eat his lunch, and he'd be a happy little chappy. He could look at what he's got compared to what everyone else has got and go, you know what? I've got enough for me, definitely not enough for anyone else, so what am I going to do? I'll just, well, I can't. It's, it, do you get that whole, that whole overwhelmed at the need? I, I can't do anything about it, so therefore I'll do nothing about it. That's still hubris. It doesn't sound like, it doesn't sound like you're being arrogant if you respond like that, but you kind of are because you say, it's still all about me and what I've got. Right? I don't have enough, so I'll do nothing. Or otherwise, some people say, I've got enough, so I will save the world. Right? It's actually the same root thing, though, going on. Instead of humility, saying, God, what do you want to do? So, so this little boy's actually got a choice, and here's this opportunity. He can be Thomas Martinez, running away from this incredible opportunity, or he can be himself, the little boy in the, character, in the Bible story, who says, ah, oh, is he going to have just enough for his lunch, or is he going to have an abundance? We've got, a, we've got just enough, haven't we? When you think about the gift of salvation, the gift of eternal life, the gift of joy and life and forgiveness that God gives us, hey, we've got enough. We've got everything that we need to live fantastic lives in wonderful communion with Jesus Christ. We get to heaven, go to heaven, you know, and live eternity there. That's enough. But our Christian life is not just about us. Your walk is not just about you, a city that's set on a hill. You don't put a, a basket over the top. It's not just about, oh, well, that city can be happy because it's, it's got light, so it's just going to see itself. It's not just about them. It's not just about you. It's about where God has placed you. It's about the people around you. But we get to choose how we live our Christian lives, don't we? How we live our lives. Is it just going to be enough for me, the goodness of God, the blessings of God, knowing God, is that just enough for my lunch? Or am I going to give it to Jesus and see an abundance and see a great harvest? And so that's the same for our resources, for our talents, whatever God has put in our hand. So this little boy, he's got enough to satisfy himself, but he indicates a heart that is willing for change. I don't like change. I like things to be the same, right? And if there's going to be change, I like a long time for, to get adjust to it. So as it happens, it kind of is like, oh, you know, this is the new normal. You know? and, and, but this little boy, he's indicated that he's got a willingness to change. He lets go of his lunch and he's, he's shown, hey, I'm willing for this lunch to look different. I thought that it looks like five loaves and two fish. But maybe actually it's going to look a little bit different. Maybe it's going to, maybe God wants to take it and change the format of it, change the timing of it. Don't know, but he shows there's a, there's a surrendering of his plans. There's a surrendering of his timing and his format, the way that he's familiar with what he's got. But there's an interesting thing. He gives everything that he's got. He gives his five loaves and two fish. He doesn't do an Ananias and Sapphira, which might have been a good idea. You know what I mean? Like, hey, how about you just give, come in, look at the crowd again. Just take, how about you give four and a half loaves? You know, you've been smelling that crusty bread all day and you've been hanging out for it. So how about you just take a little nibble or, you know, the fish, maybe just eat the eyeballs and, you know, <laughs> and on. Um, so my dad is Malaysian Chinese and as kids growing up in Chinese restaurants, the children always get given the eyeballs, all right? That's like the treat. So the youngest kid always got the eyeballs. And I'm, I just never seems to be the youngest. There's always someone younger than me. So I only ever got the eyeballs once. But anyway, tasted like chalk, actually, but in the middle. 
Um, that's a little bit. That's not in my notes. Come to think of it. Um, so he gives nothing. He doesn't hold anything back. He gives it all. If I was him, I think I'd have something to say. Hey, you know what? I'd be happy to help out, but I haven't got that much. Have you ever heard that? Even coming out of your own mouth? Oh, look, I'd be happy to help, but look, my mum's really kind to have cooked this for me, but she always overdoes the fish, so it's not that great. I don't think anyone else is going to like it, so it's not really that good. So how about you don't use this? It's, it's, it's nothing. It's not enough. It's just not good enough. What excuses? What excuses do we give Jesus when he asks for our lunch? There's no dialogue here. He just hands it over. But after he handed it over, and this sobers me, after he gave his lunch, think about it. What was left for him? What was in his hand? Nothing. After he'd given it all to Jesus, there was a period of emptiness. And I think that period of emptiness is one of the greatest testing times of a disciple's faith. And I use the word disciple very carefully there because it's not just about someone who believes that Jesus is Lord, but a disciple. People who are committed to following Jesus and saying, yes, I walk with you, I'll obey you, you are the Lord and Master of my life. And Jesus asks us to give it all to him, we give it to him, and then all of a sudden we find ourselves in a period of drought, in a period of wait. What? Wait! Because when he gave his lunch, there's no guarantee that he's going to get it back. He's now just another boy in the multitude who's hungry. There's no guarantee that he's, it's going to get replaced, let alone that there's any more coming. And that's the cost of discipleship, isn't it? But it's also the reward of discipleship. No guarantee but God. No guarantee but God. His hands are empty, but he's standing before Jesus. And what he had is now in the hands of Jesus. And so there's, there's a place of rest, there's a place of peace. Because he's still there. And, and I love that, I, I, it doesn't say this. In my mind, when I read this story, I just think that this is all going quietly on in the corner somewhere. The crowd don't know what's going on. They haven't got a clue. And it's between this little boy and Jesus in many ways. And sometimes when I live my Christian life, you know when, these, when the hardest struggles, it, it's in the most private moments. And somehow it would be a lot easier, wouldn't it? Maybe if it happened publicly, when everyone can hear both sides of the conversation and they can see the nobility of my sacrifice to Jesus. And they can understand exactly what I am giving up for him. And that somehow would make it a little bit easier, perhaps, and a bit of accountability. But no, 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 this is a private moment. A private, quiet moment. So then verse 11, so then he, 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 has the, he has the lunch. Jesus in verse, says, verse 10 says, have the people sit down. And so they, there was much grass in the place. My two-year-old niece was telling me this story, and she said, Jesus said, sit down on the wet grass. So everyone sat down on the wet grass. <laughs> Apparently that's how it happened. I don't know what translation she's been reading, but it, you know. But they sat down on the grass, and then Jesus takes the loaves, he gives thanks, and he distributes to all who are seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. Everyone was full. As much as they wanted. As much as they wanted. And then 
Verse 12, he says to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So that nothing will be lost. No amount of sacrifice for Jesus is ever wasted. Nothing goes unseen and nothing is a waste. Your tiny crumbs don't even get wasted. The fish bones, well, it says nothing was wasted. Maybe they took those home for soup. I don't know. But nothing was wasted. And I think for some of us, only eternity is going to give us that perspective. But that's faith. Faith is saying, Jesus, you're asking of me. I will give to you. And whether I get my hands filled again or whether they stay empty for the rest of my life, I trust you and I trust that nothing is wasted. And I look to you to provide for me. But this is my favorite part of this story. So yeah, sure, I mean, this is a great story. It doesn't get much better, but it does get better. That's the amazing thing. What is the ultimate result? They all get filled. They're all happy chappies. They get to take leftovers home. I mean, how good is that? Take the leftovers home. Doggy bags, doggy bags for everyone. And then in verse 14, when the people saw the sign he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is come, who is to come into the world. The Messiah was revealed. This is the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. This is the one these people have been yearning for, crying for, longing for, for hundreds of years through slavery, through exile, through wilderness, through feast, through famine, through the promised land, through it all. They have, their hearts as a nation have been yearning. This deep spiritual hunger and longing has been craving for this Jesus. And because of one little boy's lunch... The light bulb goes on. They're physically filled, but at that point, their spirits are nourished and their lives are then changed or can be changed because now they see this is Jesus, this is the Messiah. And sometimes I feel, I, I feel overwhelmed by the needs of the world around me. When I start hearing statistics about how many unsaved there are, how many people have never heard the gospel, I start getting overwhelmed. But it only turns into overwhelm when it's hubris. When I start thinking about, well, I can only be in one place at one time. I can only talk to one person. I can only do this much. I can't do that very well. That's hubris. It doesn't need to be overwhelming when I turn to my Jesus and I say, Jesus, hey, this is your problem. There's a big world out there that doesn't know you. What are we going to do? What are you wanting to do in me and through me as part of your great plan of resources to get the gospel to the world? to change this world for Jesus. What is it that you're wanting to do in me and through me? And then it's not overwhelmed. It becomes, okay, Jesus, what's my lunch? What have I got in my bag? And I start turning my pockets inside out and I go, well, that's not very much, but he doesn't want to know how much it is. He wants it. Give it to him and he'll tell you how much it is. And so that's what, that's what this little boy says to me. It's this incredible challenge. And when I read his story, I'm just reminded of Thomas Martinez. I could be, this little boy could just as easily have been a speculative story. You know, and then they don't have anything, so there's this little boy, and he says, oh, I've only got five loaves and two fish, and so Philip goes and he finds some other person who've got three cakes and two croissants, and so the crowd has a sugar overdose instead. I don't know. 
And someone else gets the blessing of having their lunch. But you get the point here. He's got a choice, one or the other, and he takes the opportunity. He seizes the opportunity. He says, yes, Jesus, have my lunch. And incredible, incredible things, far beyond his imagination or capability. That's the great thing. It's beyond his imagination or capability. There's no way in a million years, even if he'd gone and learned a trade and thought, I'm going to become a wealthy businessman and feed all these people. By the time he made enough money to feed all those people, they probably would have all been dead, right? So instead, partnering with Jesus, this is what you're wanting to do, and this is what you're asking of me. So this is where I launch into a little bit of my story and journey and what God has brought me, how God has brought me to this place. So when I was four years old, I I, I was growing up in a pastor's home, which is obvious by the fact that I'm about to tell you. He... um, one afternoon, I was, I was four years old and I was in my lounge room watching the Jesus film by myself. So only a pastor would put the Jesus film on for their four-year-old to entertain them in the afternoon. But anyway, there I am. I watch it and I get to the end and I realize this is not, a, this is not just a story. This is, this is for me. Jesus died for my sins. And I remember kneeling down and asking him to be a part of my, of my life. And then when I was five years old, a missionary came to our church and he talked about people in different parts of the world who were being persecuted for their faith. And I realized there are people that I, will, that I will never meet on this side of heaven that are dying because they believe in Jesus. But I also realized there are people who are dying without knowing Jesus. And both of those things are heartbreaking things. And so the missionary talked about people who don't have Bibles, that don't have enough money for a Bible. So I went to my purse, ripped it open to check out all my life savings. And apparently it was $5, been saving at a dollar a year. Wow, by now I'd be, no, I wouldn't have much money still <laughs> if I'd get that up. So I got my $5, I went up to him and I said, please, would you, use, would you take this money and send it to somebody who, who can't buy a Bible? Use it to buy a Bible for somebody. A couple of weeks later, I, I get a letter in the mail. Dear Kylie, thank you for your gift of $5. Your gift has enabled a believer in these countries to, to, buy, to, to own a Bible or something like that. And all of a sudden, I realized, wow, a little kid can make a difference. So never underestimate the influence that your conversations and your example, and maybe your little letter that you might not think twice about. I don't even know the missionary's name, to be honest, isn't it? You know, I can't even thank him. Like, I don't know who he was. Um, but, but it makes a difference in young ears. And, he, and, 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 and without a vision, the people perish. But with a vision, imagine what can happen if a young life gets a hold of, hey, I can, make, I can give Jesus my little lunch. And so as I, as I got older, my parents really nurtured that in me as they encouraged me to, to just serve, to find ways. And so, so from that point in my life, I wanted to serve Jesus. And so the question was not, will I serve you, Jesus? But the question was always, when and how, sorry, where and how do you want me to serve? So the first question was done. I knew I was living for Jesus, but where is it that you've got me right now and how? And that's, again, if you've got children, grandchildren, nephews, nieces, any young people, and for yourselves, obviously, obviously, take that one first, but then for the people around you, encourage that and nurture those two questions. Where and how am I supposed to be serving Jesus right now? Because I tell you what, seven-year-olds can have amazing ministries in the kingdom of God. They've got incredible places, so let's, let's nurture that. And so for me, that was kids' clubs and Sunday school programs. Um, I played a bit of piano, so you know, whenever people need a pianist or you know, dishwashing, babysitting, whatever it may have been, different opportunities. As I got older... Um, that turned into some overseas trips, so short-term missions trips and, and just being involved in a number of different things. And so I, I was involved in um, youth camps and training and just incredible opportunities that 
just ca- they just kind of fell in front of me as I asked those two questions, where and how. That's all it is, where and how. And so the where and how keeps changing. So then I, and then I started doing some study. And again, it was like, okay, what, 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 can I, what can I study that will equip me to best serve Jesus where he's leading me? Um, and so I, I, I did a bunch of study. I learned counseling, as I, as I mentioned earlier. I eventually got over the frustration of not being able to use it to fix the world. Um, it still frustrates me a little bit sometimes, but you know that's, that's part of your study. That's what you study for and what you practice. I saw the 1040 window. You'll see that you may have heard the 1040 window. It's that black box, all the countries in that region. Um, The 1040 window is an interesting one because approximately two-thirds of the world's population lives inside that window. So that's a lot of people. Uh, And about 86% of all unreached people groups. So people groups who have never heard the gospel before. They've never heard the name of Jesus Christ. But what sobers me about that is that only 10% of our missionary effort goes into that area of the world. doesn't make much sense, really. 90% of all our missionary activity is outside of the black box. But most of where it's needed most desperately is inside that black box. There's lots of reasons for it. Most of the most, of the most unsafe countries to be a Christian are inside that box. And so it's a hard, it's a hard area to, to do ministry. But I don't need a call to be a missionary because what if the Great Commission is a commission and not a suggestion? What if the Great Commission is the Great Commission, not the Great Suggestion? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all nations? Oh, what if, we, what if it was actually something we had to do? Novel thought. And I realized, you know, in Second, in, in second Corinthians, it, it says that um, we are a new creation, right? The old is gone, the new has come. So we have a new identity. And in that passage, it says that the old is gone, the new has come, and part of that new identity is that we are now ambassadors of God. We are his representatives here on earth to know him and make him known. Not just among, in my life, but among the nations, in the world. I'm called to be a reconciler. It says in that Second Corinthians 5 passage that we are, we are reconcilers of God and man. And, and so as representatives of God, we come and we beg you. We, I beseech you to be reconciled to God. That's our mission. See, God has this mission all through scripture of coming and seeking and searching out and saving the lost. Reconciling man to himself. And then he sends Jesus on the earth. He says, Jesus, you go get him reconcile man and me, like go and be a bridge between us. And then Jesus, when he's leaving, he says, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. That means the mission that God gave Jesus is now our mission. The great commission to make disciples is given to all people for all people. And so there's no exclusion There's no exclusion zone. So what if I don't need a call? What if I need a call to be somehow allowed to be the exception, the one Christian in the world who doesn't, the one disciple of Jesus Christ who doesn't have to believe what he told all the rest, who doesn't have to do what all the rest have to do. And so to, to carry the gospel, to be intentional in ways of seeking to bring people to Jesus Christ, that's my DNA as a Christian. None of us should be shocked when a baby learns to walk, all right? Because that's what babies do. They learn to walk and talk. And there's something really wrong if a baby doesn't learn to walk and talk. 
When I introduce you to a friend and say, this is, this is someone who in her workplace shares the gospel with people, none of us should go, wow, you're amazing. No offense, but there should be no amazement. That's what you do. You know, when you roll in here and you bring four of your neighbors to church or to an outreach, no one should be saying, oh, all right, we got an award for the most attendees brought. No, that's what we do. And there's something really wrong when we don't. Something really wrong. And so the mission of God given to Jesus Christ is the mission that he has given to each one of us, his children. Jesus had many disciples and some followed him everywhere. Some he sent out away from him. Some stayed in their homes. But all were called to discipleship. All were called to follow Jesus Christ, to, lay, to, to take up his cross and follow him. And all were called to make disciples. So are we, are we disciple makers? Because this is the thing. I'm not trained. I can't. Pastor Bob is a great disciple maker, and so I just bring him to church and Pastor Bob does it all. That's wrong. He shouldn't have to do it all. He has to do some, sure. But you have to, that's, that's your problem. That's your walk with Jesus Christ. That's your responsibility before him. Let me just finish here with the Great Commission. Jesus says to go. And when we read it in English, and there's a little bit of debate about this, but generally when we read it in English, the most important word, the theme of that verse there is go and make disciples. Um, but if you look in the Greek, generally the consensus there is that the main command in that verse is actually disciple. Disciple as you go. Disciple as you baptize. Disciple and teach. Disciple all, all ethnicities. And I want to leave this with you because Jesus' command is actually an opportunity. And you can choose Thomas Martinez be that little boy. You don't have to solve the problems of the world. You don't necessarily have to relocate to the other side of the world. Maybe that's what giving up your lunch is going to look like for you. Maybe it just means talking to that grumpy neighbour that keeps complaining about your tree. Maybe it means being bold enough to say, hey, can I pray for you when their sister is diagnosed with cancer? Maybe it's just at church on Sunday, instead of only talking about the weather, and the sponge cake for morning tea, asking, hey, how can I be praying for you this week? What's God been doing in your life? Discipling people, intentionally saying, God, how do I know you in my life and how do I make you known better in other people's lives? It's looking around you and going, hey, is there a young Christian? Is there, a, is there somebody in my community that's struggling that I can really take under my wing? I can, make them, I can pray for them every day. It doesn't matter how old or young you are. You can pray for them every day. My grandparents are 98 and 97. They live next door to us. And they still, my nan says that Gramps is getting old. And so she forces, she says that he's, he's getting lazy. So she forces him to go for a walk every day. So he gets his walk route and the two of them shuffle down the street. And I saw them yesterday, two days ago. And they stop at every neighbor and they talk. And, and sometimes my nan gets a bit confused. But everyone, she says, I, she, I, I, I tell them I'm a Christian and I'm praying for them. I find out how I can pray for them. And she says to me, sometimes, Kylie, I ask God, why am I still here? Why, why won't you just take me home? She says, I'm ready to die. I'm done. Sometimes I ask the Lord, why have you still got me here? And she said, and then I remember, I can pray for these people. I can pray for these people. 
Lord Jesus, as we consider your words this morning, we hear commands, but we hear an invitation. An invitation to give you what's in our hands, what's in our pockets, and to let you use it to feed multitudes, or, or, or one or two, however you, want to, however you want to. But you call us to obey. You call us to be disciple makers, to be your disciple, to follow in your footsteps, but to live for you. And so I ask this morning for everyone in these pews, would you get a spotlight and shine it really brightly on whatever they're tucking away, not wanting to give to you? And just challenge them with that, I pray. For those who are maybe fearful or, or unwilling to step out of their comfort zones, to disciple others, to share you with others, would you just keep hassling about them, them about that? As you promise your grace and strength, you promise to not leave them or forsake them, to go with them in that. Keep speaking to them about that, I pray. Maybe some just need a word of encouragement this morning to keep going, to remember that we sow here and we don't always see the harvest, but we need to be faithful just in sowing and you'll bring the harvest. I thank you for your word and I thank you that it is far more insightful and, and, and higher and, and greater than anything that any of us could highlight out of it. And so we ask that your word con- would continue to challenge us, to inspire us, and that we would let it change the way we live this week. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.